This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. When is it the right time to kind of take a risk in either your personal life or your professional career? Much of that may have to do with the understanding of how much risk we're willing to deal with. The interesting thing is that understanding it is an individual decision with probably no two understandings of this being the same. Karen Firestone is the chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Aureus Asset Management. She tackles this question in her book, Even the Odds. Sensible risk-taking in business, investing, and life. Karen joins us on the phone today. Karen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I wanted to actually, before we dig into the book, uh, start with part of the title, the, 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 the concept of sensible risk-taking. How much of a challenge is that today, uh, whether it be in business or in people's personal lives? Well, risk-taking is a factor in everybody's life, all through your day, every single day, and we may be aware of it or not. Being sensible about it is another challenge. And I, I think that what makes it even harder today, as you mentioned, is that when people are under stress and increased levels of stress, which we all are, we tend to act more impulsively, and we don't think things through in a logical or sensible way. So given that I spend most of my work day and a lot of my time thinking about risk-taking professionally, yeah. it's sort of a natural outgrowth that I think about risk and the way we deal with it in complicated fashions in a way to be more sensible. Are we, are we continuing a time, and it seems like, especially since the recession hit, and, and even up till now, that we are in a period where the, the concept of understanding risk-taking and actually taking that risk has been heightened and continues to be heightened, and it doesn't seem like it has slowed down very much at all. You know, it's it's amazing if if we think about how uh, disturbing the news the news is. You know, just think about the last few weeks. Yeah. And you know, we're going into the the period of the political conventions, and you go, oh my God, there's so much upheaval, there's violence, there's distress. Um, how can we possibly, for example, make an investment? How can we possibly put money into the stock market when we see all of this happening around us? Yeah. And, you know, what, uh, what we talk about here at our company uh, lately is that the market seems to be one of the few, in a sense, um, calm locations for thought and reasonable consideration of what's value. So, you know, the market has gone up 300% since yep. the bottom in 2009, 300%. Yep. And it has climbed what we think of as the wall of worry. If people had not sold stocks in 2008, just held on, they would have hit bottom and then they would have risen steadily for all of these years. You know, we're, we're going on nearly a decade of the market going up. And, and I would say that economies continue to operate. People continue to need goods and services. And if we just sort of calmly think through that the average person is working at a much higher level in terms of number of jobs. I mean, we've added millions of jobs yeah. since since the bottom of, of the recession. 
and the U.S. dollar is strong, and this country has become the safe haven for investors all around the world to put their assets as well. So I, I think that can be, in a sense, a way to calm people down who are, who are afraid, because it's very scary when you think about, as I said, the risk that we're constantly you know, confronted with and bombarded by, by the news, which are disturbing and do make us pause. But I, I think we have to be more kind of calm and considered about uh, investing and thinking through, well, this might not be so bad. Well, I, and I will, you know, throw this in from, from my viewpoint is the fact that, you know, doing this show and obviously the last couple of years that I've been doing this show and before that when I was working at Wall Street Journal Radio Network, Every time, that, and just thinking specifically about the markets here, every time a Fed chair was making a comment, or open their mouth, yeah. or, or or Ben Bernanke, or you know, n- n- now in a different realm, uh, every time there was a tension level within the markets, and now we've got Brexit. That is obviously going to affect the economy overseas. Not, I don't think it's going to affect as much here in, in the United States. So within the markets, the global markets, that level of tension never seems to slow down at any one point. Yeah. You know, if, if we look over the past year and a half, you know, think about Ebola, for example, when everyone said no one's going to travel. And this is going to put such dent in our economy. Yeah. And then it didn't. And, and, and in fact, you know, Ebola as a crisis began to recede. And then there was... And now the, you, have, you have Zika. Right. Everybody's exactly. talking about Zika. Oh, yeah. You know, let's not go anywhere. Let's not move. Uh, how about China? You know, China is totally going to collapse, and there's not going to be any economy in China, and no one will be selling anything to China. Well, that didn't happen. And, you know, there are these crises, one after another. They don't materialize to the extent that the market... Uh, that investors, some investors originally fear, and the market keeps going. I mean, today is an example. We had in the last few days, you have Turkey. You have a coup in Turkey yeah. overthrowing one of the stalwarts of NATO, the gateway to sort of the Middle East, the ally of the United States. The market is up today, you know? Yep. It's not, people were very worried about what would happen this morning, and nothing happened this morning to the market. That doesn't mean something isn't happening there, but they're distinct. And if if the market and investments are somewhat desensitized, let's not assume that the people who are making these choices have no sensitivity. Right. It's not, you know, it's not a measure of whether we're aware and are concerned with what's happening. It's that commerce is going on. It's continuing, and markets operate uh, efficiently, usually efficiently. And I think it's a testament to the ability of economies and underlying. Uh, commercial endeavors to keep going through this. You know, we pervert, we persevere, yeah. we continue to go to work, and and people have to be aware that that risk taking is part of their experiences, your experience, mine, everyone around us, and we can't be afraid. We we can't be um, hiding in a shell of oh my god, I don't know what to do. The market could collapse, and I could lose fifty <laughs> percent of my money. And this is what keeps people from from doing it. And so their choice is getting. 0.06% 
on their savings account. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's the option. Is that good? I mean, I don't think it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fun. It's funny. I'm, you know, I'm 49. I remember the days when you actually got a, a decent return on a savings oh account. You know, yeah. forget forget I mean, that these days. How do you encourage? It's pretty hard to encourage your kids, for example, to open a savings account when they're getting nothing on it. Yeah. You know, why not spend the money? <laughs> let me let me ask you this. I mean, I mean, with the with the concept of risk taking, and you look at it from as as I said at the top, you have to look at it at the business perspective. You have to look at it in your investments, but you have to look at it in life. Mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing there are a variety of crossovers within those three in terms of understanding risk and and and, and benefiting from it. In terms of how you approach life, how you approach risk, how you, uh, or yeah. I'm sorry, business, and how you approach investment, and maybe the understanding sometimes uh, of all three may not be connected as much as it probably could be. Yeah, well, what what I tried to do in in my book is describe these tenets of risk taking that apply across business, investing, and life. So they're they're the four tenets here, and here's what they are: they're right sizing the risk, right timing, mm-hmm. relying on knowledge and experience, and remaining skeptical of promises and projections. And those apply to the investment business tremendously. You know, I think all the time about the right size of our our the positions that we take in companies, whether it's the right time, or, because you know, timing of, of when you buy or sell is, is critically important, how much we know about the investment, and then being skeptical about what we hear from Wall Street or what we might hear from the companies. But yeah. if you think about how we apply those in our life, just simple examples, you know, right sizing. If you're going to buy a house, you want to make sure that you've got a house that's the right size, not yeah. too big, not too small. Otherwise, it'll be a mistake. Right. And that it's the, it's the size of a mortgage you can handle. The size of the investment of that property is really important. So that's, you know, that's something that everybody deals with, the size, whether it's you bought a house or you're renting a place. Right timing. I mean, you, you definitely don't want to open an ice cream shop in November. <laughs> I mean, if you have a choice, you'd, you, if you're living in the Northeast or if you're living in Philadelphia, I mean, you'd rather open it in April or May. So timing affects many decisions, no matter what they are. You know, when you're getting married, when you're getting engaged, when you're having children. You know, I mean, timing is just a factor. Sometimes it's more important or less, but right. it's definitely a risk factor. And relying on knowledge and experience. I mean, you you don't want to, for example, take on um, an intern at your show if that person has only worked in an art gallery. And they say, oh, but I'm really, really interested in broadcasting and radio. But they've shown no interest before. Right. You'd, you'd like to know, is that um, something that you should know about or not? I would say yes, because it's a risk that you hire somebody who, who isn't capable and doesn't show any aptitude. Okay? So that's relying on knowledge and experience and remaining skeptical. I mean, you know, if you've got a buddy and you're out to dinner with him and he says, I've got a great new idea for a uh, a restaurant and bar that I'd like to open um, downtown, and I'd like you to invest, you know, this many thousands of dollars. If you don't ask a few questions about that, it would be pretty illogical. You, you, you better not be too skeptical and say, hey, you know, Jason's a great guy. I really sure. think that right. he'll be a great bar owner. I mean, that would be 
silly. Yeah. And it would be a lot of risk. That's exposure to danger and uncertainty. That's what risk is. Mm-hmm. And you, you need to be exposed to uncertainty to make any money or to make the right decision. But if you don't think through why it might go wrong, well, you'd be pretty gullible, right? The book is Even the Odds. Karen Firestone is the author of it. Uh, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in the conversation, ask uh, our, our guest Karen a question. Or if you'd like, you can't get to your phone, send us a quick question via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the areas of risk that, that is brought up, I think, a lot now, especially in the last decade, is the risk of leaving one job and, and either going to another or starting your own business. Mm-hmm. And you had that. You had yeah. that. You had that problem, or I shouldn't right. say problem, but you had that yeah. decision to make. You were working mm-hmm. in Fidelity Investments, and now you went out on your own. What was that process like for you in terms of factoring in all of the risks that potentially mm-hmm. could be there in terms of starting your own firm? Sure. Well, there's definitely risk every time you start a business or take a new job. And the first thing that I had to decide is, uh, yeah, or everybody's, can I handle it financially, right? Right. So if, if, you, if you leave a job and you have a better job, a better paying job, well, you've solved that problem. If you leave a really good job, I had a great job at Fidelity. I managed Destiny Fund and the Large Cap Fund, and I'd been there for 22 years. I was a shareholder. It was really a, a, a wonderful, wonderful position, and I, I love Fidelity and still do. But I was starting a business with, with a partner, and we weren't going to take any salary for at least a year, he and I. Sure. But I, I saved money, and Fidelity was going to buy back my stock. I was in a pretty good position financially to do it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people aren't and you you know, you have to consider that. So that wasn't that wasn't the biggest problem. Uh, I think that in the case of somebody who's got an established career, reputational risk is a big factor. So that was something we had to think through. You know, could we handle it if um, if our new company just bombed, if we had terrible performance. Sure. We, we were able to attract some clients, and then we did a, a very bad job for them. And that's where we had to have some confidence in our abilities in the past. My, right. my partner, David, had been a partner at Wellington. He'd managed the MIT endowment. I'd managed billions of dollars. I mean, the two of us had many years of experience, and we hired a couple of younger partners to help us who had experience as well, and we were pretty confident. Look, we had to give it a chance, you know, but we were confident, and and it did work. So I think that you have to, again, rely on the skills and experiences that you've had to see, have I been able to achieve this in the past, and is anybody going to pay me to do it? Right. You know, they pay other people to do it. Why are they going to pay me? Sure. And we decided that, you know, we had winning personalities. I mean, we we, we have a track record. Well, um, yeah. And people are going to give us a chance, and they, they might like us and not be so happy with their investment advisors that they had. And that's true in many businesses. People are, are willing to say, I've had an experience which isn't so great, either um, with a lawyer, with you know, it can be an accountant, it can be um, an investment professional, and I, I think now is the time that I'm going to seek somebody else. Yep. What what turned out to be an, an 
an amazing but hidden benefit to us is that because of 2008 and 2009, when people lost a lot of money, that shook up the industry so that there were many people looking for new investment managers who have been very happy in 2005, 6, and 7. So that, that actually helped us in a strange way. Right. We got a lot of business as a result because we had pretty good performance. We had very good performance our first few years, and people could say, oh, well, these people have been in business for a few years, done well, and they have strong backgrounds. So, so that helped. And, you know, we, we've been very lucky and fortunate for having a, a, a core group of people who have stuck with Aureus and we've added partners and it's grown. And, yeah, we started with, with, uh, just like our, our money. We couldn't take our clients. I couldn't take my clients from Fidelity. I, uh, I, I had a non-compete. I wasn't going to do it. Plus, sure. um, you know, you just grow, and we are up to $1.5 billion. So, I, you know, I'm knocking on my desk here. It, it, it's worked out okay. One of the things that you bring up in the book, and, and I think I've kind of used this in my life a lot, is uh, always have a, a, a healthy skepticism. You, know, you, you just can't buy in to everything 100% yeah. of the time. Oh, God, no. You can't buy into everything 10% of the time. Right, right. I mean, if, if someone says to you, isn't it a beautiful day? Well, you look outside and you see a blue sky. I guess the answer is yes, I can agree <laughs> with that. But there aren't too many situations just like that. And I, I happen to be a pretty cynical person. I'm cynical and happy, yeah. which yeah. a lot of cynical people are unhappy. But I, I find it... Um, I find it interesting, and I, I guess um, it, it's part of you know, just my nature to say, R- really, is that true? And I, I try not to be too negative about it, but but having um, having witnessed cases, both myself and you know my family and friends, where they've gone into investments, relationships, uh, exposures in business by not being skeptical, by just being gullible and thinking for sure that's going to work has been a terrible mistake. And the repercussions can be just so much worse than right. anticipated. You know, it's just not, um, it, it's not that much time to spend um, a couple of hours asking questions and doing some research on your own. Everybody does it when they buy a car. Think about it. Nobody buys a car without looking at, you know, consumer reports or going through the internet and asking a lot of their friends about a car they just bought or what they think about this or that car. People spend the amount of time and effort on buying a car that they should uh, for sure spend if they're Taking on a, a partner in a business, buying um, buying a business, starting a new job, and they just sure. don't do it. You talk about a, a variety of companies in, in the book that, that you've dealt with. Uh, Halliburton is is one that you talk about early on in the in the book, and it, it's interesting because of, of how Halliburton uh, kind of gained a reputation within the oil industry, and that reputation was was sullied to uh, to uh, quite a level. Uh, mm-hmm. And then now we're talking about an industry that uh, you know went through an amazing downturn because of the price of oil going uh, going low so quickly and in, in some respects it, it's built up 
back a little bit, but not mm-hmm. even close to the levels it, it was. Talk a little bit about that that relationship you have with Halliburton and just the the, the process of, of of that risk that you had to deal mm-hmm. with in terms of the the of Halliburton as an investment possibility. Sure. Well, you know, Halliburton has been a, a, a very interesting case in volatility, both volatility that it relates to the price of oil, since it's an oil service company, yep. it's one of the largest oil service companies in the world. So its clients are oil companies, oil and gas companies, you know, drilling companies, integrated oil companies. And also, there are risks related with, with Halliburton about the um, its environmental um, uh, treatment and, and concerns that have been through lawsuits and um, hearings in Congress and uh, Cheney as the leader of the CEO of Halliburton was controversial. So, mm-hmm. so it has faced volatility that's related to investigations and injunctions, etc. So our our um, Halliburton story was one in which we we had bought the stock at a very good price and we were um, the price of oil was going up Halliburton stock was going up we were making money with it and then we had a client who was very environmentally concerned it was a nonprofit and it was um, it was a um, a nonprofit that owned some um, um, uh, uh, conservation land, yeah. and because of because of that mission, preserving land and the environment, they didn't want to own any oil and gas stocks. Sure, and and we had bought Halliburton before they told us, "Oh, sorry, we don't want to own any of these," and we discussed internally whether we should sell it or not. And stock was had been going up, and my partners and I decided, well. Um, they, they're giving us a year. They said, you can own it till the end of the year, and it was the spring. Right. So we had plenty of time. But, but here's the way we analyzed it. There was, we would get no credit for owning Halliburton if the stock went up, and then we sold it at the end of the year from, from this group because they just didn't want it. They would have hated it. If we didn't sell it and the stock went down, we would have lost that account. Right. Because that was more important to them than the price of the stock. What yep. mattered was the environment and that Halliburton had been accused of polluting the environment, had had to pay a big fine. That was something that could not exist within the framework of their mission sure. yep. as a conservation landowner. And we had to sell it. Now, we got very lucky. So we sold it, and for a while the stock went up, and then it started to go down. And as, as you know, the price of oil collapsed. Yep. So when yep. we sold Halliburton, we had a very big gain on the stock. And then it, it, as I said, went up a little higher to $73 a share. And that was, I'm going to just give you the price. It's interesting. In 2014, July of 2014, yeah. the stock was 73 and it hit a bottom of 29 Yep, that's in right. February yep. this year. $29. So it was really lucky we sold it. Karen, I have to end it there. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. Thank you very much. All the best. Karen uh, Firestone. The book is Even the Odds, Sensible Risk-Taking in Business, Investing in Life. It's available in bookstores and online right now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.